0: Well, thank you, Gary. Let me encourage one everyone to keep their Bibles open there in Deuteronomy as we continue on in our series. And if you downloaded the sermon outline earlier this week, then uh, you may use that as well. Though I do warn you, the sermon has changed ever so slightly since that was sent out. There is now a disproportionate amount of space. We're going to be spending far more time considering curses because I thought that would cheer everyone up. So I apologize for the error in distribution of space on the sermon outline. If you've been with us uh, for the last little while studying the book of Deuteronomy, or if you've been reading along with the series in your quiet times, I imagine that you, like me, have noticed that the book is fairly often repetitive of the same ideas and themes. The same words, even, are repeated consistently, By Moses as he addresses the people and that shouldn't come as a surprise we did foreshadow that when we began the series but you hear these things particularly time and time again remember the God who brought you out of Egypt learn from the mistakes made and the time spent in the wilderness here is the law listen to it obey it keep the Covenant When you enter the promised land, conduct yourselves like this. On and on it goes as Moses, speaking as God's mouthpiece, reiterates again and again the same instructions. It's almost as if God expected that Israel would somehow forget what he had been telling them to do. And just in case we, like Israel, have forgotten what's gone before, we did see last week the beginning of Moses' section on how Israel should follow the law as he explored uh, particular, particular workings out of the law. And Andrew used right and proper worship as an illustration of these broad principles, a line of thinking that could be implied to all those different instructions given to Israel between chapters 12 and 26. And as we resume our study now in chapter 27, Moses is given those details, expanding the broad instruction to keep God's covenant commands. And now as he continues in his final message, proclaiming a series of curses and blessings on the people. These curses and blessings that are now proclaimed in chapters 27 and 28 a contingent on Israel's behavior. If they heed God's word and do as God has instructed, they will receive his blessing as he has promised. That's outlined in chapter 28, and we will get there ever so briefly. But here in chapter 27, he reminds them that should they stray from his truth, they will find themselves under God's curse. But before we get to the curses, I want to note just a couple of things at the beginning of this particular address. Notice, firstly, there in verse 1, that we're told it's Moses and the elders of Israel who command these words to the people. Yes, it would seem that Moses himself is the one that presents it, Speaking, of course, for God and not himself, but it's supported by the elders of Israel. This is a moment of transition in the book of Deuteronomy. As the elders of Israel are, in a sense, commissioned before the people. These are the men who would lead the tribes across the Jordan. Remember, Moses won't be entering in. And the burden of leadership will weigh on these elders even as the responsibility of obedience weighs on all of Israel. And so it is interesting to note that here as these curses and blessings are uttered, it is done with the authority of the elders as well as the Levitical priests, we read a little further down. And they give instruction as to what Israel to do the moment they enter the promised land. As soon as they cross the Jordan, they're told that they must immediately establish monuments and altars to remind them of God's law. Monuments, we read, that are to be whitewashed, painted white, if you like, vibrant stones set on a hillside that would be visible for miles around. And even though you might not be able to read the inscribed law upon them from a great distance, The white beacon standing on the hilltop would remind you, wherever you were within sight of it, of God's goodness in delivering his people into the promised land, and of the law that he expected them to uphold. These monuments were to be vibrant, whitewashed, visible for miles, untouched by the iron tools of the nations around them, and inscribed yet again with the law of God, this further reminder of what God had done for his people. And indeed, if you studied the book of Joshua, as we did some years ago here, you would know that there are a number of occasions throughout that history book where Israel does just this. They erect piles of stones, monuments, memorials, and altars as they work their way through the Promised Land so that they might remember the deeds of God later on in their lives. This particular event is recalled in Joshua chapter 8. And if you have your Bibles, you might want to flick over just a few pages into Joshua. Where in Joshua chapter 8, from verse 30, we read this. Then Joshua built on Mount Ebal an altar to the Lord, the God of Israel, as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the Israelites. He built it according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses. That's a way of saying Deuteronomy. An altar of uncut stones on which no iron tool had been used. On it they offered to the Lord burnt offerings and sacrificed fellowship offerings. There in the presence of the Israelites, Joshua wrote on stones a copy of the law of Moses. All the Israelites with their elders, officials and judges were standing on both sides of the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, facing the Levit- Levitical priests who carried it. Both the foreigners living among them and the native born were there. Half of the people stood in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebel and Moses the servant of the Lord had uh, sorry as Moses the servant of the Lord had formerly commanded when he gave instructions to bless the people of Israel afterward Joshua read all the words of the law the blessings and the curses just as it is written in the book of the law there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel including the women and children and the foreigners who lived among them. We read there in Joshua chapter 8 that when it came to following God's instruction of establishing this monument, Joshua, the elders, the priests, and all of Israel followed God's words to a T. They did exactly what had been instructed to them. That's Joshua chapter 8, comes right before Joshua chapter 9, where immediately Israel ignored God's instructions to drive out all foreigners from the promised land. Joshua chapter 9, where Israel instead, led by Joshua, make a treaty with the Gibeonites, some of the Canaanites who would go on to cause all manner of problems for Israel in the future. Even in these things, Israel found themselves unable to fully cooperate with God's instruction. But back here in Deuteronomy 27, just before we hit the curses, there's one little instruction that's important for us to note, one little instruction that would be all too easy to miss, and it's, found there in verses 9 and 10. It's easy to miss in the often repetitive words of Deuteronomy. It can just fly by, having read them so many times. And it's even easier to miss in the NIV, which we often use in our preaching, which translates one word as follow. Up to my side, you can see the New American Standard Version, which I think more accurately translates these verses. It says then Moses and the Levitical priests spoke to all Israel saying be silent and listen Israel this day you have become a people for the Lord your God you shall obey the Lord your God and do his commandments and his statutes which I am commanding you today Now here at the edge of the promised land as they're about to enter in Their status as God's people is re-established in that word. Today, you have become, or here, you are God's people. It's that covenantal language that you've perhaps become familiar with. I often summarize it as God's people in God's place, enjoying God's rule. And here, Israel is reminded that they are the children of God, entering into the promised land to enjoy the rule of God. But in verse 10, they're specifically told to do his commandments. The word translated by the NASB as do is a unique use of this word. It's used numerous times throughout the Old Testament, but in instruction to follow commandments, it is uniquely placed here. And I highlight it because this word is actually a positive instruction. If you're familiar with the Ten Commandments, and I trust you are, you would know that the majority of them are negative instructions. Do not have other gods. Do not make idols. Do not misuse God's name. Do not murder, commit adultery, steal, lie, or covet. Do not, says God. But here, at the edge of the promised land, They are given the positive instruction to do the commandments. Israel needed to understand that following God is not just avoiding the violation of his commandments, but rather seeing the implicit positive instruction to honor the sanctity of life, to honor marriage, To be truthful, to be generous, to consider the needs of others above the needs of yourself. To love God and worship Him rightly, as we saw last week, in His way. Essentially, in this moment, Israel is encouraged to grow up in their service of the Lord. What do I mean by that? Well, all of us at some point were small children. And when you are a small child or when you have small children, the instructions given to them are often negative ones. Don't touch that. Don't go there. Don't speak to that person. Don't bother me. It's all negative instruction providing boundaries for the children. But as you grow and as you become more mature, you're given more freedom and more positive instruction. So too it is with Israel here at this point. They're told not simply to see the Ten Commandments as boundaries in which to be hemmed in, but rather as a guidebook for full living in the land. They are not simply to not murder one another, but rather to value and love one another's lives. And having given the encouragement to do the commandments, Moses takes a break. You can see it there that he returns later on that same day in verse 11. Moses gives this positive instruction to live for God. And then he comes back in verse 11, perhaps a little later. On the same day, Moses commanded the people. When you have crossed the Jordan, these tribes shall stand on Mount Gerizim to bless the people. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin, and these tribes shall stand on Mount Ebel to pronounce curses, Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. These two mountains, or hillsides, really, bordered the city of Shechem, and they formed a natural amphitheater. With the hill on one side and the hill on the other, those standing on the mountain face could quite easily call out to one another, particularly when you had such a great number of people. And Moses paints this image of what will happen, and Joshua records these events taking place, that they would stand on either mountain according to their tribes, and there before one another and before God pronounce blessings and curses upon themselves. This would be a powerful Demonstration of the seriousness with which God takes the obedience of his people. When God gives instruction to his people, he expects his rule to be obeyed. And as they stand on these mountainsides, picture it if you will, they begin with the pronouncements of curses. Curses for violating the morality of God's law curses which will be declared one after another and as they are declared all the people will say Amen let it be so truly now we could work through each of these curses and I could take the time to highlight why they are wrong But I don't think I need to do that. They're pretty self-explanatory as we read the list of ways they might profane the law. Besides which, I don't believe that this list is meant to be exhaustive. As if these sins alone attract a curse, whereas other sins go unpunished. Rather, I think what Moses or God through Moses is highlighting to the people is that all sin will be found out and will bring about curse. Consider the nature of the things that are mentioned in these list of curses. For the most part, they are things that would take place in secret. Within the knowledge of only the one who is sinning, or perhaps another who they are sinning with, These are not transgressions that would take place in the public eye. Anyone involved in them would be quite eager to know that they were hidden away. These curses are a reminder that God sees all his people do. That sin done in public will be judged and that the punishment will be outworked by the community. But that God will also see the sin done in private And that he equally judges that harshly and will bring his curse upon the sinner. These curses remind us of the holiness, the righteousness of God and the expectation that he has of his people in all times and all places, both public and private. And it's so often there that our sin resides, isn't it? brothers and sisters, in the privacy of our own homes where few can witness it, in the privacy of our own minds where only we are aware of it, these curses remind us that God sees and judges all things. But these curses weren't going to be a problem for Israel, were they? After all, Israel were God's chosen people being brought into God's promised land, guided by God's own holy law. They were going to be fine. And so I imagine that Israel confidently declared that word, Amen, when each of those curses was uttered. And I imagine They meant it with all sincerity. With no intention of finding themselves in violation of these restrictions. I don't think they stood on these mountainsides with their fingers crossed behind their backs, not meaning what they were saying. I think they meant every word, every oath. They truly intended to live as God's holy people. But as we know from Joshua 9 and from the rest of the canon of Scripture, things went horribly wrong. So what is it that went wrong for Israel? Friends, simply knowing the instructions to something is not the same as living it out. Knowing what is expected doesn't always, to tran- doesn't always translate to living it out in our lives, does it? I mean, we see that every day in our society. If you were to talk to any common adult with enough common sense and connection to media and books and the internet, if you asked them how it was that they should live healthily, they would be able to tell you that they should eat right, that they should exercise that they should sleep enough and get enough sun and so on and so forth. And yet a simple observation of our society would tell us that despite the fact we know these things, we struggle to do them. So it is with Israel. Simply knowing God's law, even if it's declared powerfully on two mountainsides, is not enough to motivate us to follow it. Israel's case is more sinister than perhaps our society's. It is the sin that steers their history the wrong way. What we see in Israel's history, friends, is what we're all too familiar with in our own lives. These stories, these curses, highlight the utter inability that people have to follow God fully even we struggle with it don't we it shouldn't be a problem after all we're god's people guided by god's holy word indwelled with god's own holy spirit it shouldn't be a problem but like israel we find ourselves unable to fulfill the instructions of our lord we know them yes But something just goes wrong. We find ourselves like Paul, I think, in the book of Romans. If you have your Bibles, please come across to Romans 7. Words that I trust many of you know. Words that this morning I trust many of us will feel. Like Paul in Romans 7, reading from verse 14. He says, we know that the law is spiritual, but I am unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it's the sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. for I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil that I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do not what sorry, now if I do what I do not want to do. It is no longer I who do it, but it is the sin living in me that does it. So I find this law at work. Although I want to do good, evil is right there with me. For in my inner being I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death i think paul's experience here which i'm sure many of us feel ourselves is the very same experience that israel had knowing what is right knowing what is required is not enough And so even as Israel stood there confidently saying, Amen, we will never do such things. They found themselves doing them, bit by bit. We're drawn to it, unable to escape it, the pull and lure of sin. As Paul says, it's right there inside. And though we know it's wrong, we're drawn to it. Passages like Romans 7 and passages like Deuteronomy 27 should drive us to our knees in confession, knowing that we fare no better than Israel did. And had we been in their place, we too would have gone astray. How amazing, then, brothers and sisters that we can continue on with Paul's words in Romans 7, verse 25. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. The curses would have us come to a place of utter rejection. Rejection of God's law and rejection by God of us but praise god says paul that through jesus the curses are covered the oaths are fulfilled the debt is paid the law is upheld and his righteousness is imputed into us we live now brothers and sisters in the blessings of christ blessed to be filled with his Holy Spirit, blessed to know the hope of salvation, blessed to know forgiveness when we stray and when we stumble and when we fall, that despite all our many failings, our faithful God forgives because Christ is enough. For Israel, blessings would only come through obedience It was contingent on their behavior in Deuteronomy 28. From verse 1, we read this. If you fully obey the Lord your God and carefully follow all his commands I give you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations on earth. All these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. The fruit of your womb will be blessed and the crops of your land, the young of your livestock, the calves of your herd and the lambs of your flocks. Your basket and your kneading trough will be blessed. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. Israel could experience the blessings of God, but only if they perfectly obeyed his law. These blessings spoken counter to the curses, demonstrate that not only is God holy and righteous but that he is also loving and full of grace that he is faithful to his promises on the surface it was a very simple decision how would you choose to live would you stand on the mountain of blessing or would you stand on the mountains of cursing everyone would pick faithful service and the blessings of God surely Yes, friends, truly sin is the greatest enemy of all people, of Israel, of us, of the nations around us. And instruction alone is unable to overcome it. Indeed, at the end of the blessings in Deuteronomy 28, Moses instructs the people in verse 14, Do not turn aside from any of the commands I give you today, to the right or to the left, following other gods and serving them. Moses tells them that if Israel is to walk in the blessings of God, they must do so so very precisely, staying exactly on the narrow path that God has laid out before them. They must stay the course, toe the line, keep on track. But they couldn't. Sin derailed them. Temptation distracted them, the nations around them drew them away, and the curses came. Brothers and sisters, we have a similar instruction in our lives. In Matthew 7, verses 13 and 14, you may not need to turn there, you'll probably know the words. Jesus says to his people, enter through the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life and only a few find it. Jesus gives that same instruction. Stay the course, toe the line, keep on track. The difference, of course, is that for Israel, this instruction meant perfect obedience to God's law. For us, it means wholehearted dependence on our Lord Jesus Christ. Our salvation, our experience of the blessings of God is not contingent on our ability to do his commandments. Yes, they still stand as his word and we seek to live up to them. But where we fail, we know that Christ is enough. Friends, we stand in the blessings of God because of the grace that he has lavished on us in Christ Jesus. It's all about Jesus, friends. It's all grace. All glory be to him. Let's pray. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we know that you are a holy and righteous God, a God who demands perfection and obedience from his people. And as we consider Israel's story, we are reminded of our own failings. We, like Paul, find ourselves doing the things we hate and failing in the things we wish we could do. Praise be to you that you have delivered us through Christ Jesus. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, for his life of obedience, for his fulfillment of the law, for his sacrificial atoning death and his mighty life-giving resurrection. Help us to know that blessing more fully, to ponder it more deeply, to live in it day by day as your people. We ask it that Jesus might be glorified in our lives, and we pray it in his name. Amen.